These are the oldest stories, online at oldeststories.net. Last episode, the kingdom of Eshnunna was crushed just as it had made itself the regional power. King Zimrilim of Mari, feeling threatened by both Eshnunna and Babylon, reached outside of Mesopotamia itself to call upon the Elamites of southern Iran, currently unified and far more powerful than any single Mesopotamian state. And in 1767, Mari and Elam, with the reluctant support of Hammurabi of Babylon, crushed the rising power. Many cities along the Diyala River were destroyed utterly in the fighting, and King Ibalbiel vanishes from history, presumably executed, and the city and its surrounding territories are occupied by Elam. This last may have come as a bit of a surprise to Zimrilim and Hammurabi. Elam had over the centuries raided and defeated Mesopotamian cities, but they had always then either withdrawn or left a vassal king to watch over the city. It was unprecedented for the Elamites to directly annex a region, which may have been why Hammurabi and Zimrilim had initially been supportive of the invasion, even accepting the Elamite king's condescending demands during the war itself. But with the end of the war and Elam's occupation of Eshnunna, problems arose immediately. Hammurabi had joined the war, hoping for a slice of Eshnunna's territory, specifically targeting the cities of Mancusum and Upi, two cities on the Tigris a bit north of modern-day Baghdad. It seems that Hammurabi's grandfather had briefly conquered both of these cities back when Eshnunna was much weaker, and so it was a point of pride for him to restore the borders to at least this extent. Hammurabi then receives a letter from the king of Elam that quite clearly encapsulates the situation. The king says, The cities of Eshnunna that you hold, do they not belong to me? Release them and submit them to my yoke, otherwise I will pillage your country. My army would set out to the city of Mancusum, and it would cross the river at that spot. At the head of the army, I myself would cross the river and invade your country. The Elamite king is not much for subtlety, and at the same time fired off a letter to Zimri Lim demanding that he cut off all communications with Babylon. Hammurabi seems to have stalled him diplomatically. He's already recognized as the region's most talented diplomat and negotiator, even if we haven't really seen it directly so much yet. And like the dispute over the city of Hit on Mari's border, the Elamite border dispute lingered for a time unresolved. The Elamites are now the undisputed largest power in Mesopotamia, and like Upper Assyria and Eshnunna before them, they make no secret of their hegemonic ambitions. In 1765, the year after the end of the Eshnunna conquest, Hammurabi receives a demand from the king who saw himself as the natural overlord of all lesser rulers. It reads, I have decided to start a campaign against Larsa. Mobilize your elite troops, your siege engineers, and the subjects that I saw in Eshnunna, so that they will be ready at my arrival. If one man whom I saw before is not ready, I will hold you responsible. Hammurabi played along with this demand, though the prospect of Elam on both his northern and southern border was surely worrying. Fortunately, it seems that the king of Elam didn't actually plan to conquer Larsa, or at least not just Larsa, and had also sent a letter to Rim Sin, ruler of the south, asking him for his support in a war against Babylon. It seems that the Elamite king was going to pick whichever king seemed more supportive and conquer the other, though both knew that once their rival was dealt with, they would be next. 
And so Hammurabi sent Rimsim a copy of the demands that the Elamites had made of him, and the two joined forces, corresponding frequently as they prepared for an invasion that both kings had to have known they were not ready for. The king of Mari had spies in Hammurabi's court and was able to learn of this plot and pass it on to their Elamite masters, but Mari too began to have issues with the new invaders. Mari, like Babylon, had hoped to profit from the collapse of Eshnunna, but Zimri Lim's area of chief interest was the broad northern steppe lands of modern East Syria and North Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates. However, Elam began almost immediately to expand in that direction, and with no major powers between them, a chain of incidents soon soured relations between Mari and Elam. We have a contemporary report of the incident that gives us a very good sense of the progression and scale of the conflict. From the moment that the Elamite army arrived at Razama, the people of the city made a sortie and killed 700 Elamite soldiers and 600 soldiers from Eshnunna. After being cut off for ten days, the city elders came out and said, We are for peace. If your soldiers move the camp to a distance of five kilometers away, we will pay you in silver. But the Elamites answered, You must be imagining this. Oh, let's make a false proposal so that he will clear out his camp and we will have ended Razama's problems. But if you're really for peace, why did your leader Sharia not come out for himself? Get back and fortify your city. And the city elders left with the warning, This city belongs to Zimri Lim, and our regular army is with him. Do not try to do anything until the master of this city returns. Sharia took his precautions and set up his defenses. Moreover, he continued to make sorties and kill soldiers from Ishnunna. But the enemy general Atamrum was in the process of building an attack ramp that was closing in on the city. When the front of the ramp had reached the point where the outer wall meets the glacis, the inhabitants reinforced the wall to the left and right of the ramp as the attackers were breaching the wall. When it was still night, the inhabitants climbed through the breach at the ramp, made a sortie, and killed half the attackers. They took their bronze spears and shields and hid them in the city. The inhabitants of the city were only thinking of King Zimrilim. Then Atamrum thought up this ploy. He gave bronze spears to thirty vagabonds and tried to intimidate the city, saying, Why don't you stop thinking about Zimri Lim? Don't you see that his soldiers are among the attackers? But the people of the city weren't fooled and replied, Those are vagabonds that you've armed. In five days you will see the real army with Zimri Lim at its head. This was, of course, a bluff, but the report continues that... The rumor that Zimri Lim will arrive has reached the Elamite army. During the first watch, it went on full alert twice. It also said that night and day, water has to be brought in to the troops from a distance of 10 kilometers. Who, from a small army of two to 3,000 men, can escape the killing of water carriers when the civilian inhabitants of the city alone make sorties and kill many soldiers? These soldiers are alert in their camp and are very afraid of my lord. May my lord hurry to save the city. At the sending of this report, the siege of Ruzama had stalled out. The mercenary general Atamrum had breached the wall but couldn't push through, and the citizens weren't enough to dislodge the large enemy force despite some successful sorties. Zimri Lim did not send his army, just a threatening letter to Atamrum, though the threat of Mariat reinforcements was potent enough that Atamrum requested help in turn from the Elamite king. 
However, when the Elamites refused to send aid, Atamram, staring down the barrel of certain defeat, decided to switch sides and throw his support over to Zimri Lim, turning the advantage in the north back to Mari. The two sides begin to coalesce with this. The Elamites send out letters to every petty king and tiny tribe with pretensions to independence, demanding that they either join or be considered an enemy of the force that was going to conquer the world. On the Mesopotamian side, now that the Babylonians had pretty clearly become Elam's main target, Hammurabi established himself as the leader of a coalition of everyone who didn't want to fall under Elamite domination. Hammurabi remained suspicious of Zimrilim since his own spies reported that the king had continued to send gifts to the Elamite king until only very recently. But finally, before witnesses and the gods, Zimrilim and Hammurabi performed a sacred ritual oath to bind themselves into the coming war. Still, everyone knew that the Elamite force outnumbered their own significantly, and they all went to work levying troops from every village and tribe in their territory, with Zimri Lim's recruiters even marching under a severed head on a stick to demonstrate the consequences of failing to muster. These Mariot troops were sent down the river to Babylon as soon as they could be mustered, and the slow drip of 600 here and 1300 there over a period of weeks saw each new group celebrated in Babylon. Hammurabi gave gifts freely and even ate personally with some of the troops. Yamhad in Syria and Larsa in the south also joined the alliance, though they were a bit more cautious in keeping control over their own men. Finally, in autumn of 1765, the Elamites made their first move in the Great Elamite War, assembling a massive force in Eshnunan territory and marching south along the Tigris to the contested city of Upi. The siege was brief, and before Hammurabi could get reinforcements to the city, the garrison took all the boats and fled down the river, abandoning the city to the enemy. With Upi taken, a garrison was left and the rest of the Elamite army returned to Eshnunna and retired for the winter. Each side had the winter to prepare and build up forces, and in the spring of 1764, shortly after the New Year's festival, which occurred for them in late March, the Elamites advanced on the other contested city, Mancusum, on a crucial river crossing of the Tigris. Mancusum was taken quickly, but Hammurabi was already reacting, sending a joint Babylonian Marriott task force to the next fortress down, at a town called Namsum. The Elamites moved in a different direction, however, laying siege to a town called Hiratum, near Sippar. The Elamites brought with them 30,000 men, by far the largest single army attested at any point in the Middle Bronze Age. Upon surrounding the city, the Elamites began the usual practice of building a siege ramp out of dirt, but the men of Hiratum were prepared and released specially prepared dams from their irrigation network to flood the area just below the walls, washing away the enemy earthworks and forming a moat around the city. This delayed the Elamites long enough for a joint force of Babylonians and Marriots to arrive in reinforcement. Here we see some of the tactical genius on display in the era, one of the few times the inner workings of a battle is revealed to us. The reinforcements were far fewer in number than the Elamites, even if the men of Hiratum were to come out of the walls in reinforcement. But the commanders of the Babylonian army knew that they didn't need to defeat the Elamites, they simply needed them to withdraw from the siege. 
And so the reinforcements attacked specifically the siege equipment, tools, and materials before withdrawing, stalling progress and making a powerful show of force. Soon enough, disgruntled Eshnunans, who resented having been forced into the Elamite army, began to contact Hammurabi from within the camp, offering to defect, and the assault began to fall apart. There is, as has been mentioned, very little detail about what open battle looked like in this period. On this show, we've looked twice now at military matters, first in Lagash, back around the year 2400 BCE, then more recently in the Issan Larsa period around 1900 BCE. There is a lot of uncertainty, both about fighting styles in any given period and about how those tactics and equipment evolved over time. But in this show, I've gone with the view expressed by historian William Hamblin in his book Warfare in the Ancient Near East to 1600 BC, that in the Sumerian period, warfare was a matter of spearmen fighting in blocks rather akin to the ancient Greek hoplite formations. Then, I represented the Issan Larsa period as something of a transition between that and the later, lighter, Amorite style of warfare. Though honestly, that transition could have been a very brief moment in time, or it could even potentially extend out until Hammurabi's time. However, I believe that with the great conquerors of the 1800s, Hammurabi, Shamsi Adad, Rim Sin, and now this great Elamite war, that we are solidly in the period of exclusively Amorite warfare, characterized by much lighter and more mobile infantry formations, and an end to the spear wall formation almost completely, except perhaps among city militias. Both mercenary and professional state troops are now equipped and trained in the Amorite way of warfare, and are most likely ethnically Amorite even in cities that are primarily Akkadian or Sumerian. The Amorite warrior is characterized by light equipment, and almost certainly a fairly loose battlefield formation. Axes and daggers were tools used commonly in civilian life, and these familiar tools were the most common weapon among the infantry. Short spears were common as well, though whether they were used exclusively in spear blocks among untrained conscripts or in among the professionals is unclear. Wealthier men and officers could by now purchase curved swords in a style imported from the Phoenicians of the West, and the symbol of command authority remained as it had since early Sumerian times, the copper mace. The mace was considered fairly symbolic, and there are examples of very elaborate ones that probably never saw combat, but of course, getting whacked on the head with a ball of copper on a stick is going to ruin anyone's day if it comes down to it. Ranged weaponry includes bows and javelins, with rocks and slings being an option among militiamen and conscripts defending their city, much as in earlier eras, and skirmishing likely played a very heavy role in these agile and highly tactical armies. In fact, dedicated archers are rarely mentioned in this period, suggesting that most professional troops could have carried both ranged and melee weapons and been deployed for skirmishing or direct combat as needed. Shields now come in two varieties, the tower shield carried by a dedicated shield bearer, which protects specific targets on the battlefield like siege equipment, construction laborers, or formations advancing under concentrated fire. 
The other type of shield may well have been optional, a much smaller shield carried on the arm, probably round at about two feet in diameter for personal protection. Some may have foregone this second shield in favor of wielding two weapons at the same time, sometimes axe and sword or dagger, and sometimes two axes, though there is debate as to whether or not this is merely artistic convention that may not have ever been practiced in an actual battle. Organizationally, we can say more about these soldiers now than at any other point in history, thanks to both the wealth of letters and the number of provisions in Hammurabi's famous law code. Professional soldiers have definitely risen to the forefront here, displacing conscripted levies as the primary fighting men of the age, and were typically drawn from a distinctly Amorite military caste in each city. Unlike levies, a professional soldier was not allowed to skip service by hiring a replacement under penalty of death in Hammurabi's code. The men were paid in four ways. First, through allotments of necessary goods, food, clothing, and weapons from government stores. An army could typically carry supplies for about 40 days. Any more than that would need additional shipments for resupply or, more likely, would need to resupply through plunder. With an average army speed of about 25 kilometers per day, this puts the effective range of an Amorite army at right about a thousand miles, which fits pretty well with what we've seen so far, considering that western Syria, right about a thousand miles away from the Sumerian heartland, is about the furthest that the political world of Mesopotamia reaches. The men were also paid in silver, about two grams of silver per month for a regular trooper, increasing as one went up the ranks. Ranks were divided at first in groups of tens, with the next man up from a regular trooper being a commander of ten, and after that were divided into sixties, which was the primary base of the Mesopotamian counting system. Perhaps the most significant for most soldiers was the grant of land for their families, often taken from conquered territory. This gift of land is highly regulated in Hammurabi's law code, and it seems to have been a major problem that soldiers were cheated out of their allotment in various ways. And the final form of military compensation was through plunder. Goods stolen from conquered towns would be collected and reported, with the king taking a certain percentage as his due, but the issue of officers taking things that had been rightfully plundered by their subordinates was such a major problem that some commanders, dealing with mutinous soldiers, were forced to discipline their greedy officers as though they had committed sacrilege against the gods themselves. The right to take things from conquered towns, it seems, was a sacred right of the individual soldier. When it came time to fight, we know that tactics were generally understood as being crucial parts of warfare, though what sort of tactics were used and how they were studied and transmitted is unknown. The most direct, and in fact only, evidence that we have for this is a letter from Shamsiadad to his son, in which he says... You think up stratagems to beat the enemy and to maneuver for position against him. But the enemy will likewise try to think up stratagems and to maneuver for position against you, just as two wrestlers use tricks against each other. There's nothing else anywhere in the Middle Bronze Age corpus that so much as hints at tactics. But we can see in the few details of battles from this period, like strategically targeting siege equipment to prevent the overwhelming force of the Elamites from being able to storm the walls of Hiratum, 
that commanders were definitely thinking with at least a certain degree of tactical sophistication. While the Elamites were being stalled out at Hiratum, the remaining Allied force, some 2,000 Mariots and 3,000 Babylonians under a Mariot general, marched into the relatively undefended territory of Eshnunna, hoping to make some quick gains. However, it seems that a spy from within the camp managed to escape with the Allied marching orders and return to the Elamite cities so that they were all able to fortify in time. Unable to take any cities by surprise, the Mariot general was forced to return with nothing to show for his efforts but some cattle raids and burnt crops. Elam withdrew from Hiratum, and Babylon withdrew from Ishnunin territory. The war had stagnated. In the north, the defection of Atamram was followed quickly after by the appearance of 20,000 soldiers in Mari, most of them reinforcements arriving a bit late to the party from Yamhad. These men weren't sent by Yarim Lim, the king who had built Yamhad up into the greatest kingdom in Syria, and who had been responsible for the defeat of Shamsiadad and putting Zimri Lim on the throne of Mari, for he had passed away at the start of the war. Aleppo is now led by yet another man named Hammurabi, who I will be calling Hammurabi of Yamhad for clarity. With the defection and reinforcements making their position untenable, the remaining Elamite forces in the North Syrian desert were forced to pull back, leaving a wake of destroyed cities on the Tigris as they did in a scorched earth policy. Pausing at pretty much the only solid Elamite gains of the war, the city of Mancusum, the king of Elam secured his borders, deciding that what he had taken was fairly secure from his many enemies, and looked now to the last tiny state in the region for expansion. With the collapse of Eshnunna two years prior, the city of Asher had been far enough away to avoid falling directly back into Elamite hegemony, and so Ishmi Dagon, the diligent son of Shamsi-Adad who had been taking refuge in Babylon rather like his father had in similar circumstances, returned to the now unoccupied city of Ekaladim and rebuilt a tiny Assyrian kingdom, no doubt hoping to repeat his father's remarkable comeback story. To the king of Elam, however, tiny Assyria looked like nothing more than a juicy and wealthy snack. Though Ishmi Dagon was allied to Babylon and by extension the entire coalition arrayed against Elam at the moment, it was on the wrong side of Eshnunin territory to receive easy reinforcement. Assyria would have been doomed if this war had only been fought with soldiers and spears. But, just as the Elamite army was getting ready for the next campaign, Hammurabi proved that his pen was mightier than any Elamite sword, or at least his reed stylus was, and his network of spies and covert communications among the discontented Eshnunans rose the entire conquered country to rebellion against the foreign rulers who were plundering their cities, taxing their wealth, and now beginning a scorched earth campaign in Eshnunan cities to prevent them from being recaptured by the Babylonian alliance. The Elamites were attacked in their own camps by these former Eshnunan allies, and citizens in occupied territories attacked garrisons in towns. With this mass uprising, the king of Elam could do nothing but retreat, and soon sent a letter begging for peace to Hammurabi. This letter was apparently quite short, and simply announced that a state of peace existed, without asking or demanding any terms. 
Hammurabi's reply was a bit more triumphant, including the line, Why did you not listen to what I told you? The people of Eshnunna will not fail to live up to their reputation as rebels. On the other hand, here in Babylon you will find loyalty. This is what I told you. With this gloating, I told you so, Hammurabi generously allowed all Elamite envoys and certain prisoners to leave Babylon and even returned their confiscated property. He failed to ingratiate himself with his defeated foe, however, and the Elamite king was already offering alliances to any Mesopotamian king who wished to join him in a renewed war against Hammurabi. This came to nothing, however, since in the next year he would fall terribly ill, so ill that the Mesopotamian kings would in fact receive news of his death, and though he would in fact survive for a time afterwards, Elam was finished as a major player in the Mesopotamian game. In Eshnunna, the departure of the Elamites left them in an odd situation. The city no longer had a ruling dynasty, with the previous king having been killed during the invasion. It's often forgotten, but it seems that nearly every Sumerian and Akkadian city had some sort of public body of citizens, sort of like a council or congress that would be convened when the general citizenry had concerns to voice, or when the king had communications directly towards the citizens. The council in Asher was particularly powerful, but in general these seem to have had little impact on history in normal times. In the absence of a king, the Eshnunan Citizens' Congress convened to decide what to do. A vocal minority favored offering the throne to Hammurabi as thanks for winning the war, but ultimately it was decided that a certain citizen of Eshnunna, a man named Sili Sin, should found a new native dynasty. In Babylon, Hammurabi celebrated, naming the year that we would call 1764 as the year in which, with the help of the great gods, Hammurabi had defeated the armies of Elam from as far as Marhashi, of Subartu, Gutium, Eshnunna, and Malgium, which had arisen against him as a great mass, and he established the foundations of Sumer and Akkad. Now, first off, we should note that he absolutely has a good reason to be giddy right now. He, principally, gets the credit for winning the war, even though he conveniently leaves out the assistance of Mari, Yamhad, the Eshnunan rebels, and a tiny bit of help from Larsa. Also, note that he's in an interesting position, since on one hand he probably didn't accompany his army on any of these expeditions, a massive change from previous eras when the personal presence of the king was almost mandatory, but also that the real victories were won through clever positioning, diplomacy, and spies, not outright battle. Additionally, the list of defeated foes should strike you as comically inflated, since while Elam may have had mercenary or army contingents from all the places listed, his only real enemy was Elam, though by itself that was more than enough of a threat. Still, though his self-congratulation is a bit over-enthusiastic, Babylon is now in the strongest position of any Mesopotamian power. Since the war probably didn't actually cost too much, considering its large scale, thanks to a relative lack of actual fighting on Babylonian soil. To make things more interesting, however, as the dust clears and everyone realizes that Hammurabi is climbing to the top of the regional ladder, his two closest neighbors remember that they both have very good reasons to hate his guts. 
Mari is continuing to demand the religiously important city of Hit be returned to them, and Larsa in the south has spent the last 40 years at this point being constantly pressured by their northern neighbor and having their water access and irrigation canals disrupted by Babylon's activities in both peace and war. The Elamite War was a turning point for the power of Babylon in the region, but they are the fifth kingdom in a generation to have a shot at regional hegemony. Larsa stalled out against the wall of Babylon in 1792. Shamsi-Adad's northern kingdom collapsed with his death in 1776. Eshnunna was crushed by the Elamite invasion ten years later, and the seemingly unstoppable steamroller that was the Elamites and their 30,000-man army was scattered back to the Iranian mountains only two years after that. And now it is Babylon's turn to try and succeed where so many other conquerors had now failed. Join us next week as Hammurabi turns his attentions southward to the kingdom of the aging Rim-Sim and establishes himself firmly as the first ruler of a unified Sumer and Akkad in 250 years. Thank you for listening.